You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. We're in the season of Easter, the season of resurrection, and we're thinking about what it, what it means to be re- experience the resurrection in our own lives. And the idea that we're working with is the resurrection changes everything, right? It has to have that kind of impact, especially if we're talking about the reality of Jesus coming back to life after he died, right? That's the, that's the substance of the matter. And I want to talk about specifically the material difference that the resurrection makes now to us in the present. Because I think you might, when you're thinking about resurrection, we may lack in that idea about what is the material. And what I mean material is practical benefit to me now, now that we have this idea of the resurrected savior. I don't think Christians do that in general enough. And I think what If you've heard about this idea before, what we might be likely to do, or what people that talk about the resurrection are likely to do, is talk about something like whether or not it happened or not, right? They're very concerned with uh, the historical event and that it occurred. And I would say that it did, but the, the conversation doesn't just end there because I think that following an apologetic or a defense of whether the resurrection really happened and why it's so important to believe in it, we're left with abstraction, right? It's still an abstract idea. Like, yes, I believe it, but then what is it? What, what do I do with it now? How, do, how does it impact me today? Isn't that really what is, a, what's, what, what is the matter at hand? You know, I think the best evidence for the material reality of the resurrection of Jesus is shown right now in our lives today, right? How Christians act now or people that purport the resurrection happened, what, how they act now is the best evidence for it, right? So that's, that's what I want to work on. If the resurrection changes everything, what does the resurrection change now? And, and we'll work through this uh, for a few weeks um, in fact, we've always said that Jesus, and we mean circle of hope, we said Jesus is re- revealed in community, best revealed in community, incarnationally, in relationships. So for my money, the, uh, the revealing the resurrect- resurrected Christ in community is one way that we can do it. And, and, and we evidence the resurrection of Jesus by, I think, how we relate to the people that we're closest to. How, I hope I have the slide here, how you treat the people closest to you is one of the most important pieces of evidence for the resurrected Savior. How you treat your uh, loved ones, how you treat your friends, how you treat your family, how you treat your subordinates, should you have subordinates. I guess my children are my subordinates. That's who I have. How you treat your children, right? It's, it's, it's our household, right? It's, it's your roommate, it's your husband, it's your mom, people you live with, right? People with whom you uh, share a toilet, I think would be a good way to describe it. 
I think that's, a, that's a, just, just hold the space for a second. That's an intimate thing to do. So sometimes you talk to people about like having a conflict with somebody or like talking to them and addressing them. They'll say, oh yeah, I don't, we don't really have that kind of relationship. Well, you have the toilet relationship. I think that's, a, that's, that's the start of something. You should probably talk to them, right? That too much? You know, if your rear end touches the same toilet as someone else, that's what I mean. Let's just be real specific, okay? That's a special thing. It's written right here, just letting you know. You're all going to email Jeff after this and say, man, you should have. I wish, I, wish, I wish you were here. <laughs> so, so, so that's the idea of resurrection that I want to work with. Among our household, expressing it can be really hard. Because resurrection then requires things like mutuality, things like agreement, often challenging and difficult conversations. I mean, do we even, do we even talk about our problems and conflict with our roommates, for example? Right? I'm, there's always tension in the household, it seems to me, right? I always, I always, this is always my example. It's the roommate who collects all the, uh, the mugs in their room. Like somehow, you, you have, are, you, are you this, some of you are this roommate, so I wanna, I wanna tread carefully. But right, how do I have the conflict over the dishes? How many, how many uh, conflicts have happened over dishes? How many times have you uh, washed a dish in spite? Like you're, you have contempt in how you're cleaning it, right? You like break the glass, <laughs> right? These things, these are, these are material things that we deal with, right? How do, we, how do I show the, how do I evidence, so to speak, the resurrection in that moment? How do I, how do I deal with my, uh, how, do I, how do I talk to my mother, right? In a way that's gracious and, uh, and um, Christ-filled, right? That has the same spirit of life that we're talking about. Because I think it's easy to do it in some sense, at least superficially, abstractly, with people that, we're, that, um, that are not as intimate, as not as close to us, as like our parents or our children or something like that. How do we, how do we talk to our uh, spouse about the thing that they're doing all the time? Right? How do, how, 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 do we, uh, how do we get over that um, sense that we might be nagging them or the defensiveness that, hey, I'm working on it. We just talked about this. I'm, I'm getting there. Give me some credit, you know? Tell me when I do it right, right? You can, you can imagine this kind of conflict that happens. How do, how do we live the spirit of the risen Savior in, these, in that environment? And then how do we even, how do we talk about Jesus in other relationships, faith? the real resurrection? How do, we, how do we talk to our kids about Jesus? Our spouses, our family, our roommates. How do we overcome what might feel like anxiety? What might feel like, uh, you know, some of you, some of you are quite assertive about your faith, so there's something to work on there too. Um, I want to walk through a chapter in Acts 16 where the Apostle Paul may give us a hint as to some basic ways to do this. Um, and we're going through a lot of text here, so I, I, I think the practicality of it offers, that it offers is important enough that we can wade through it together. So let's read Acts 16. This is 1 through 5 we have here. And yes, this is a Lego drawing of Paul circumcising Peter. Although I don't think, I don't, uh, uh, sorry, not Peter, he's circumcising Timothy. Though I don't think that's the exact implement <laughs> that he used. 
There's a there's a if you there's a website about Lego like shaped Bible stories. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's very it's quite up my alley. So maybe <laughs> you might like it too. Someone out loud read this interesting story. Paul went on also to Derbe and to Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places. For, all, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went from town to town, they delivered to them the observed, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and increased in numbers daily. This section introduces us to someone who Paul calls his son at some point, Timothy, someone who's very close to him, one of the most important helpers and companions of Paul. And we know he's important because there are at least letters in the New Testament directly addressed to Timothy. The first and second Timothy, Paul calls him a brother, one of his children. And so the relationship is very intimate, and this isn't, this is probably isn't the first time they're meeting. Luke calls him a, a, there was a disciple named Timothy. He calls him a disciple right then and there. And so, so we generally think that Paul aided his conversion earlier, maybe during his first missionary journey. Paul went on a series of missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean, planting church and kind of seeding the territory with, uh, with the gospel, with Jesus. And so he's, he's spoken of highly and has a good reputation. Timothy's an interesting character because, as, the, as, the, as Luke says here, Luke's the writer of Acts, his mom was Jewish and his dad was Greek. So they have um, an intercultural marriage, right? I guess in our language today, you could call it like an interracial marriage, although um, it's, we're not necessarily dealing with uh, race here, right? Skin color isn't dividing anybody yet. That, that only came about like 500 years ago. So other things are dividing them. So they have this intercultural marriage, and, and such a marriage is illegal according to Jewish law, right? Can't be yoked with someone of another tribe. And so we get the idea then that Timothy didn't grow up in a Jewish household, or at least a strict Jewish household, and chances are he was part of this diaspora that was happening all over the Mediterranean where the Jewish people were tossed to and fro, and, and he grew up nominally Jewish, like just, just in name, so to speak. So he wasn't that strict, and in some ways that goes without saying, right? Because his, his nominally Jewish mother didn't have him circumcised. And circumcision was a big deal in the Jewish community, a mark of the covenant of Abraham. And his mother didn't do it. And so that lends to some idea that maybe he didn't grow up in a very strict household. But at the same time, his Greek father may have not allowed it either. So we have some idea that there could have been some loose Judaism in his life, but it wasn't that strict. So Paul circumcises him. This is an unusual and an amazing moment because he's an adult and Paul is a... We know that Paul is opposed to requiring circumcision, and they make a big deal in the New Testament about why it doesn't need to happen, that we don't need to make these Greek people do this 
unusual task that they would certainly find to be off-putting, to say the least, right? If removing your foreskin is the, is the barrier to entry into the church, for most adults, that's a high barrier to entry. And so I don't, I don't know how we're going to... I mean, it's a non-starter, right? And I, I, that's personally how I feel right now, right? Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to your church if you made me do that. You know, that's weird. Um, so, but Paul does it. That's why it's weird, because he makes a big point about not requiring it, but here he circumcises Timothy, which he's Jewish, so it wouldn't totally be unheard of. And, 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 and he does it so that the Jewish people in the area would be open to hearing the gospel. So you're not doing this because you need to. You're doing it because for the people you're trying to reach, it would be weird if you weren't. They practice, uh, they, they uh, I don't know what they do in gymnasiums, but they do things in gymnasiums where they could see each other, so to speak. So that's how, no one's really checking, but it's a public, it's a public thing. That's how it's working. They know that Timothy's father is Greek, and so Paul is trying to ease the process. He comes from a foreign family. He comes from an unusual family. So it's interesting because, again, Paul's vehement about not requiring circumcision, but for his leaders, he's willing to put them through more than just the basic necessities for the sake of a greater cause. We're circumcising you, not because we have to, but because it is accommodating to the people that you're around. And, and we kind of see this spirit in Paul's writing, like in 1 Corinthians 9, when he says, I became all things to all people, right? And so here, he, the, Timothy is becoming more Jewish for the Jewish people he wants to reach, right? For Timothy, he humbles himself to include someone, and Jesus offers us an opportunity for humility too. He... Uh, Timothy doesn't need to do this for his own salvation, but he wants to remove a cultural distraction from his ministry to the Jewish people, and so circumcision helps him accomplish that task. So the question may be for us, what do I need to do? What do I not need to do that might benefit me in including someone? What do I need to do to include my roommate or my family member? What liberty, even a liberty that God grants me, and his salvation gives you freedom to participate in would be better sacrificed for the sake of someone else. What liberty do you have that you might let go for the sake of someone else? Right? That's the discussion. That's the question. Where, where must I be humbled? How can I change in order to help someone else change? So that's the first story in the first five verses. Here's another one. Someone out loud, read, tell us about Lydia um, in the same chapter. Sailed from Treos, Treos, and took a straight course to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and the Roman colony. <coughs> we remained in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we were supposed to there, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in the purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Thanks, Robert. 
the journey continues. Now they're in uh, Philippi, which is a cosmopolitan town. Um, like the, it's, it's a world city, if you will. It has precious resources. It has Roman culture. It has more Latin inscriptions than Greek inscriptions. So it's like a little microcosm of Rome. They spoke Latin in Rome. That was the, that's the official language. And so it's important in the Bible because of the church that begins there and because Paul writes to Philippi from prison when he pens Philippians, he's writing to this church. And he is very, uh, if you ever read Philippians, he's very nice to the Philippians and very generous, and he's very happy with them in general. If you read like, to the Corinthians, he's not very happy. So there's the tone happening here. These are, these are his close ones. He loves them. Luke calls it a leading city, the leading city of, uh, of Philippi. And because that's probably because Luke's from Macedonia and from the Philippi section, and he's given a little shout out to his hometown. Like if you're from Phil, if you're writing a story about Philadelphia, you might write, and it's, it's like the best city on the East Coast. You know, that's the kind of idea that's happening there. There aren't many Jews in this town, and there doesn't seem to be a place to pray. Paul's looking for a place to pray. And so his crew, they go down by the river, like our ancestors did, and they prayed down by the river, right? And, and so in the absence of a place of prayer, this locale would do fine. And so they're doing their thing, and Lydia overhears them. Lydia's a wealthy woman and is enchanted by their words. And... This word for listening here that's used suggests that these interactions could have taken place numerous times or perhaps over a long period of time. Thus, they build a relationship. Lydia's there, Paul's there, they're praying. Something's happening. Something relational is happening there. And then she sees and follows. And probably right there in the river, Paul baptizes her and her whole household. Right? That's the, the Greek word for that is oikos. And I only tell you that because if you ever read our cell plan, we talk about oikos, we talk about households, we talk about including your households, the people with whom you have influence into the cell. Lydia influences her household and they follow too. And Lydia invites them to stay with her and her servants and her family. She's a Jewish person. And, and the Jewish order attracted many more women to the movement than men. And this is noteworthy because women were not leaders in the Jewish community, by and large. And we think Lydia is the first Christian convert in Europe. She's the first one that made the step over. She founds the Philippian church, a crucial town in the spread of Christianity in Europe. You know, I, I, I'm okay calling her. She, she planted the, the Philippian church. She's a church planter like we are. Lydia is wealthy and has the capability to lead and to influence her family. And Paul takes advantage of that and manages to subvert a common order by empowering a woman, by empowering Lydia. And she, he elevates her status and the region changes. So you have this elevation here. I want you to contrast that with Timothy, who needed to debase himself, needed to humble himself to make the point. Paul's elevating Lydia. Different things are happening. Luke is making a point about how the kingdom of God reconciles unusual or unjust power structures. Things are changing, you know, for the sake of the gospel, not just for the sake of the powers. It's, 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 it's not necessarily of primary importance, 
But you see, when, when Paul is getting involved, things shift around. Jesus transforms us and gives us hope beyond the worldly powers that oppress us. And Lydia's household follows Jesus too, and I think this happens because there's a subversion of the common order, and it's rippling into the world. Something new is happening. Paul makes a radical disciple, radically includes somebody beyond the limitations of her society, and she influences her household. So, how and what changes can we make that may ripple into our household? How can following Jesus empower others that they so they can influence others. How does it work? Can you, can, can you uh, just see what's in front of you instead of trying to reinvent somebody? We might not want to resurrect our household because we just don't think we have the stuff. But Paul uses Lydia in an unusual context here and we all benefit, right? Something different's happening. This is the last section we'll read tonight. Although there's a fourth story after this, and I've told, I've, I've told this tale before, and it reminds me of, uh, of Bellatrix here. So I just want you to think about her as you're reading about this unusual uh, girl who's possessed, possibly. Bellatrix is a character in Harry Potter. Someone out loud. Thanks, Rachel. The journey continues here. With You have Timothy circumcised, Lydia converted, and then they have this third person. Paul continues to travel to the place of prayer, and in this case, they meet a slave girl who has a spirit inside of her. The word is python in Greek. So it might have been something like a snake spirit, like in the house of Slytherin, for example, in case you're following along with the story. Um, that's a house in Harry Potter, and it has snakes in it. They can hear snakes and all sorts of evil things. No, nothing a Gryffindor would mess with. I'm partisan. It's okay. What's that? You can comment right now. It's totally irrelevant. But <laughs> I do? Yeah, the sorting hat does kind of not sure what to do with me. This girl's being exploited by her owners and making them a great deal of money, right? That's, that's what's happening. And the, the, the other woman in this passage, Lydia, makes her own living and survives on it. This poor girl is exploited and is apparently soothsaying, divination. She's telling the future and she's following Paul and, and, Silas, and Silas and maybe Luke and Timothy at this point too. And she keeps yelling about Paul and Silas being slaves to the most high God. That's an unusual term. In fact, in the New Testament, 
in the New Testament, it's an unusual term, and it also has some, because uh, she doesn't mean Jesus here. Similar words are used to describe like Zeus, the, lead, the, the leading god of the Greeks, for example. So she's saying, and she's saying they're preaching a way leading to salvation as opposed to the way. So, so she and whatever's possessing her is not clear about what's happening. We're not exactly sure what's going on. She might not be, but she thinks they're slaves too. You're slaves like me, and she's yelling at them. And this version says Paul's, Paul gets annoyed. And so maybe with her, but I think probably more with the spirit that's in her. And it doesn't seem to me like the girl is being particularly hostile, but Paul is disturbed or, or burdened deeply, you might say. So almost as a result of his irritation, he addresses the spirit to come out of her, and then the spirit moves out of her. Luke uses some clever wordplay right after here when he writes about this, this moment that the spirit left her. Because the shop owners are making a profit. Uh, the, their way of making a profit was gone too, and so they freak out. It's like he exercised the demon and also took away this power that was profiting them, and so they feel violated too. And so he crosses a major barrier here in freeing a slave of her bondage, not just of the spirit, the bondage in the spirit because she was possessed, but also the bondage of the world since she was slave to these dudes making money off of her. He frees the enslaved. There's a material, there's a material consequence to the resurrection. Something different happens. You're not just being spiritually freed, you're being physically freed. Something new is happening. Following Jesus frees people from their earthly bondage and all sorts of oppressive things, right, in order to liberate them. We can be stuck in the ways that we're uh, maybe enslaved to the things that we're loyal to, to where we place our allegiance. You know, we might be enslaved to a lot of different things. You know, that's a, that's a big word to use, and so you might not even want to use it for yourself because you're thinking about other people. But you might be bonded to something else, and you might feel trapped, and I have no way to get out. I don't know what to do. I, I think we have no way out but Jesus. Um, our faith offers us then a practical thing, like freedom from slavery. It's not just about what you think. It's not just about um, how you feel. It's about who you are and what you do, right? Our faith should have practical results because thinking about the resurrection or feeling about the resurrection isn't as good as doing something about it and being someone about it. Our faith should have practical results. And I think that if we're going to have any hope of, of the resurrection affecting our relationships, affecting our loved ones, maybe we start with Timothy's humility and figure out how we're going to meet them right where they are, just like Paul accommodated the Jewish people in the community. Or take advantage of the allies that you have, like Lydia, and then include, include them radically in the mission. See what good they have to offer. Or we might need to open our eyes to the slavery that's in the world, to the bondage that's in the world, to the bondage that we experience and others experience, and then thus be emancipators, freeing people from their bondage and knowing that true freedom comes from Jesus in his spirit. 
God, give them something tangible and practical back. You know, the resurrection changes how we relate to each other. And, and that's, you might feel then some pressure to relate in the right way. Or else you don't evidence the resurrection of Jesus. That might feel uh, encouraging to you, but it also might feel like a lot of weight, a lot of pressure to act the right way or else people won't know Jesus is Lord or something like that. That's not what I'm suggesting. In fact, resurrection life means that we're still going to be okay when we mess up. We're striving for something. We're aspiring to something. And when we don't, we don't suffer some punishment. Right? Grace abounds. That's another distinguishing feature. Yeah, the resurrection changes everything. So even when you miss the mark, even when you don't quite get there, there's still room for you to be and to live and to, and to be okay. So let's pray and do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here and for being present with us. Keep showing us ways that we can practically influence uh, the people around us and show them that, yes, you, you are resurrected. May we keep living out of that freedom, changing how we relate and changing the world along with it. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.